Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Hello and welcome to another week here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. We are coming up on our one-year anniversary, and we want to hear from you. What guests do you want featured in the one-year episode? We have an incredible lineup coming up over the next few weeks, but as always, we'd love to hear from you, our listeners, and get a better idea of what you want to hear on that Freedom Rain podcast. Now, this week, we talked with an incredible horsewoman, Mustang Maddie. We had an incredible conversation about some scientific-based training she's experimenting with. Now, a lot of these methods aren't popular under current horsemanship, but Maddie is at the forefront of something revolutionary. After talking with Maddie, I've personally implemented a lot of her newfound methods, which have brought me quite a bit of success. For more information on Mustang Maddie, you can visit her Facebook and Instagram account under Mustang Maddie. You can also visit her website under mustangmaddie.com and find her YouTube channel that features her current training series titled Compassionate Cowgirl. As always, we love the feedback and your continued support of the show. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. We hope you share the show with a friend, and we hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is Mustang Maddie. Maddie, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing very, very well. Now, I know amidst all the jobs that it takes, right, and running a podcast, scheduling definitely is the most important, and oftentimes that alone could be a full-time job. So I want to thank you after the weeks and weeks of dialogue and back and forth, we finally get an hour to sit down together and kind of talk life and talk horses. Yes, I'm excited. I've been looking forward to it. No, it was an incredible opportunity. So what's been going on? I know you had a pretty busy year thus far. Uh, how the last couple of weeks been going for you? Uh, so the last few weeks have been going well. I recently got back from California from the Western States Horse Expo um, and kind of hit the ground running here with some events out of our facility here in Colorado. Um, so we've just started putting some events on here. So it was really a special time because people got to come out here for the first time to the mountains. And it's just like a beautiful area. It looks like something out of a Disney movie. <laughs> so it's been really great to share it with people. I was going to say, not a bad place to wake up and work horses, huh? <laughs> no, not at all. The, the problem is just making time to work horses, right? <laughs> I was going to say, time, time is always it, right? Uh, usually, <laughs> most of us in the Western industry are drawn in a million different directions. And our horses are the last to get worked or the last thing on the mind because we have a thousand other things to get done in the course of a day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge can be a challenge. <laughs> Good stuff. So as we work through this episode, obviously, we'll get to your uh, program and, and everything that it entails. But let's start a little bit. I like to start every show with with guests history and kind of how you got started in horses. And I know your start is somewhat unique and, and not necessarily the fairy tale start for most children getting into horses. Yeah, so uh, let's see. I, I mean, I've loved horses and every animal really for as long as I can remember. I started riding consistently when I was five or six. Um, I kind of had two kind of outlets for riding. One was in uh, Indiana at like a hunter jumper farm that my older sister was riding at. And then the other was, it was pretty drastically different, was we also kind of lived part-time in Colorado. So it was riding out here and more um, just like, you know, trail riding. And we went on some pretty intense trail rides, like riding from town to town and things like that, um, and pack trips and things. So that was kind of my initial background. And then I, uh, drove my dad insane asking him for a horse. <laughs> um, and finally convinced him when I was, uh, probably let's, oh, well, I think we actually got our first horse when I was like eight or nine. Um, that sounds kind of young. I think my older sister, it was a joint effort uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's kind of a funny story and I've shared this before, but my dad was trying to get me involved like in like sports, like, you know, ball sports, like soccer and things like that. And I just didn't care about anything but horses. So I was really unmotivated and I basically would play 
um, like defense and just like bask in the sun during a soccer game. <laughs> he uh, was trying to get me motivated. So he's like, if you score a goal, I'll get you a horse. And he thought like, there's no way. Right. But I talked to my teammates and my coach and everyone got in on it. And, you know, every game we would try to, you know, line up for me to get a shot or score a goal or whatever. And um, I finally did. And I just, uh, my dad wasn't even there, but my friends, um, my friend's parents called him and were like, Maddie is just like running around the soccer field. She just scored a goal and she's just screaming, I want a horse. I want a horse. Dad, it's time to cash out. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, yeah, we got our first horse, Sugar, who the name was ironic because she literally bucked me off like every time I got on her. Oh, no. Uh, and it was just a series like of issues, like horse after horse that, you know, we worked with or that we got because we started getting more horses. And um, I finally realized, OK, it must be something I'm doing <laughs> and um, started really educating myself and looking for answers. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about how it started. <laughs> I could go on for a while on that. No, I think it's a you bring up some very valuable points in that and. And oftentimes people don't, and this is no fault to them, right? Uh, I think folks in the Western industry or, or in the horse industry as a whole don't ask that question, right? As is, it's something that I'm doing to cause this, right? Oftentimes it's so easy to place blame on the horse or the horse's history or maybe even a trainer, right? That, that, that somebody employs. But for right. me, it was the same, it was the same that same light bulb went off when I started to really reflect and focus on my personal awareness. So I kind of want to ask you in this, in your history, I know we briefly touched on your early history. At what point do you really start to push the envelope on this education thing as far as your personal education and your personal awareness and growth in relationship to working with horses? Yeah, well, yeah, going off everything you said, I totally agree. And I think it takes a lot of courage to ask that question, is it me? And when you do, you do realize that you can only get to a certain level with horses, I feel like, before you have to go into asking the personal awareness type questions, right? And um, going deeper. Um, and so I would say that, you know, I started really diving into that, not really by choice. I feel like I was kind of forced to by circumstances, um, which we can, you know, dive into now in a little bit, but kind of going along with certain challenges that I've gone through my life. Um, but I feel like for me, it wasn't like I sat down and said, okay, I really want to look at this personal awareness thing and look at all my shadows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, all that. Yeah, it was yeah. more like, well, you don't really have an option. Life's throwing it at you. And you really, uh, if you're wanting to keep going, these are things you have to look at. Um, and sometimes I feel like it has to get to that certain pain point where, you know, we can't stop running and we have to stop and really take time to reflect and, and things like that. And so much of the life is that as well, right? We spend, yeah. we spend so much time on the run from issues that, that we probably should confront and Personal growth and development is a is a huge motivating factor and the reason that we put this podcast out. And, you know, we all, and we'll talk about trauma definitely later on, but uh, I think we all experience our own challenges and our own relative perspective on situations. And part of the show is allowing each and, e each and every guest to, to somewhat educate our listeners on their personal perspectives as a guest, right? Because so much of life when we're faced with a challenge is just a, a small tweak in perspective, right? Can have a huge outcome on one's success. So for you, mm -hmm. when did when did this awareness thing personally, where were you at, right? That caused this awareness thing to start to develop or this interest in awareness start to develop in you? Yeah. So um trying to figure out exactly where to start here. Obviously, it was a challenging start with the horses, as I described. You know, I had this certain dream or vision of, you know, my horses running up to me and couldn't wait to be with me. And, and really, that initial dream of wanting my horses to be with me as much as I wanted to be with them. And it has taken me years of research <laughs> and hands-on experience to get to that point. Um, it definitely didn't 
start out that way. So, you know, when I was younger, it was really challenging. I'm not sure looking back, like why I didn't like just give up and, you know, do something that was maybe easier, but it's just been this drive in me. But, um, I think if I were to just dive right in, um, when I was 15, I was sexually assaulted and, um, that was something that, you know, I had no idea how to deal with and suppressed for a long time and just kind of shut down. And a few months after the incident, um, I became super depressed, um, to the point where I think I mean, it was at least two weeks where I could hardly get out of bed. Um, and I had never, you know, experienced anything like that before. Um, and the horses were what gave me purpose. I mean, it's not like, you know, I mean, they still have to eat every day. They still have to be taken care of. So it was like, as hard as it was for me to do anything, the horses were what motivated me to do something. Right. And it was this, this service. Well, you know, it's like something bigger than you that you're serving is kind of what, you know, got me through that. And the horses have continued to guide me, um, in some really amazing ways. Uh, and I kind of, so initially after, well, during this depression, um, I started, you know, I kind of opened up to one or two people about what was going on. Um, but I was still really shut down and I, really just started consuming myself in the horses too, especially after that sin of depression, um, went away. Um, I just working horses every day. Um, I know like I would work, I would go to school and work seven horses after school. I would, um, not even use my locker because I figured I could save time between each class. We had seven minute passing periods and, at the end of the day, I'd rack up like an extra, you know, half hour to 45 minutes of time to work on my homework, I would skip lunch to do my homework. So I'd have more time at the barn. And it was kind of just this, I mean, almost this obsession. Um, And so then, you know, fast forward quite a few years. And back in 2016 was when I was planning my first tour. This was after the Mustang makeovers. And after I had, um, you know, started getting my name out there. And um, so I'd organized this tour and it was probably a month or a few weeks before I was supposed to leave um, to travel like all across the United States. I mean, I had several different stops planned. I was working with a new Mustang I had gotten in named Kodiak. Um, And it was kind of like, I thought he was further along than he was because I didn't get him directly from the BLM. Um, and anyways, was out there riding. I mean, I would ride at crazy hours of night. This was when I was a full-time college student at Purdue. Um, and anyway, he reacted. I got bucked off and I hurt my back pretty badly, but you know, I had this pattern of not taking care of myself. So (laughs) yeah, I I hurt my back and I was like, oh, that, you know, kind of stings. And I don't know, I probably got back on him, you know, because that's what you're supposed to do when you come off horse. You got to get right back. Yeah, on. get right back in the saddle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not think about why anything ever took place. Yeah, exactly. So, but I had to prove myself, right? So got back in the saddle. Um, anyways, uh, it was like literally the next day I slipped taking my laundry down at the house I was staying in. Um and slid down like a flight of stairs on my back. And oh, then to go to a raining clinic with Sean Florida doing like sliding stops the whole weekend. And by the end of the weekend, I could not like barely walk. And my back was just in, I mean, you know, when you hurt your back, it's not like, you know, your arm, you know, you put it in a sling and you keep going. I mean, your it's like your back is like tied to everything. So yeah, every single thing you do incorporates your back. Yeah, exactly. So I have a friend with, um, who does myofascial release, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, her business is called motion for life and she's located in Indiana, but 
she like took me under her wing because I was planning on staying with her for a little bit before I went on the tour, like between college and traveling. And she took me under her wing. And really, that was the start of what I would call my actual healing journey. Like when I started really looking at things, because myofascial release, I don't know how familiar Mm -hmm. you are with it, but it's you know, it has a lot to do with the emotional component of trauma and injury yeah. as well. Yeah. And um, what actually helped my back was revisiting the trauma from when I was 15. And I had to really look at that again. And I remember um, in one of the tre- after one of the treatment sessions, I just started shaking and like I couldn't stop shaking. I was just like, you know, I don't even know. It was just, but it was that discharge of energy, you know, that had been stored in there for so long from shutting down and things. So anyways, that was kind of, I guess, the beginning of it. And then over, I guess it's only been three years, huh? So (laughs) really then diving into my awareness and my own journey and really looking at things so that I can empower others as well. And through that, I've really looked at trauma in our horses as well. And, you know, this sensitivity to them and their emotions that sometimes I wish I could just close off and not see. Yeah, uh, It's like once you learn to see, you wish sometimes that you didn't. Um, but so, you know, it's been a process to then tie in you know, my, my research on trauma into the horses as well. So that's kind of where it's led me. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been quite the journey, but that's kind of the bare, the bare bones, I guess, of, of it. I would say it's one heck of a journey. And I'd say in the three years, you've made quite a few strides in that, that very relatively short amount of time, right? Given a, the amount of time in a lifetime. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It was kind of funny. I'm, you know, I'm pretty, one of my another pattern kind of I have is, you know, obviously like being hard on myself and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. things like that. And it is, you know, to celebrate your success and look and see, oh, it's only been like three years since then, you know. <laughs> That's incredible. It, it truly yeah. is. It truly is. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I feel for you so much as you go through your testimony and and I think, you know, you touched on a lot of a lot of aspects. So and this is just my experience in, in talking with folks and, and life in general, right? Um Obviously, trauma is relative and and two people can face the same exact set of circumstances and have completely polar opposite responses. And I think one one downside is is folks that are very driven, folks that are type A, folks that are very, very motivated. Oftentimes when you when you experience something as traumatic as what you did, or maybe the death of a family member, right? I'm talking significant life events, significant life trauma. Oftentimes, we mask our pain and feeling and processing of that trauma with work, right? Exactly. We just We just stay so busy and stay so focused on success. And, and this is my opinion. You tell me if I'm wrong or, or out in left field with this, but <clears throat> excuse me. We place our personal worth and our personal value in achievement. Yep. And so much of that achievement is completely irrelevant but if we stay focused and we work hard, then we don't think about what happened, right? Right. And the hardest part in all of this is, and in my experience, right, you go through a traumatic event, there is a certain emotional process or timeline that has to take place. When that timeline is interrupted or stopped or terminated at any point, right, that's when we have these quote-unquote hyper arousals or post-traumatic stress or or unreasonable responses to stress right and and at some point for the for the recovery to take place or the growth to take place we have to allow the rest of that timeline to take place and i think for you right it sounds like when you started to get into to other alternative methods of health and and for whatever reason for you it allowed that process to take place and and you were able to metabolize that stress Yeah, well, I think you bring up such an excellent point, you know, about the busy pattern and chasing success and and things like that. And I will say after the experience of, of my back, like once, once I felt better, and my back wasn't causing I was pain free, I 
I'm happy to say that I went that entire tour without having any pain. I mean, it was just amazing. It was incredible considering I, there were really days that I could not walk. I had to crawl to the bathroom. Um, so once I was feeling better, I'm like, oh, I'm good to go. Yeah. So it's Let's get right like, back to it. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I continued like with a daily practice or anything like that. Um, and so I kept going, kept going. And in 26, the fall of 2016 was when I got my Mustang Magic Mare, Mira. Um, and that's when I did the Liberty Start with her. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that video at all mm-hmm. or if anyone is. Um, but that was like a huge realization for me when I started her at Liberty about honoring the horse's emotions and two-way communication and letting our horses say no and all the parallels between that and the experience I had when I was 15 and, um, you know, trauma and that horse especially was super shut down. And so, um, I kind of, I I'm starting here, but I am getting full circle back to what we were talking about, mm-hmm. about type stay busy. Uh, but anyways, uh, with Amira, she would really shut, she was really quick to shut down and, I really, that was really frustrating for me in the training. And it's, you know, the horses are just such a reflection of us and really a mirror. And so, you know, that saying, if you spot it, you got it. And I would really judge her for shutting down. Like, why is she not, like, what is her problem? Why is she not getting this, you know, Uh, as her training proceeded? And it really, I saw how I was judging myself for shutting down. And I think a lot of people who have been through trauma, um, you know, when your body goes into that shutdown, that freeze, and that immobility response, we really judge it even as a culture. Um, And so learning to have, it was much easier to find compassion for a mirror than it was for myself. But if you kind of start with the horse, you know, it kind of ripples out um, into yourself, I think. Um, But anyways, so that was really revealing. But Fast forward then to the actual competition, which took place in January 2017. Um, It had been a longtime dream of mine to win an Extreme Mustang makeover. I had done two prior and I had won both freestyles, which was kind of like the freestyle of my jam. I love it. Yeah, it's like my time to be creative and, and things like that. So I really love that. But anyway... I hadn't won one and it had always like, that was what I had been after. And with Amira, I felt like it really started being more about the journey. Um, and then coincidentally, coincidentally, I ended up winning. Um, and that was a huge high for me, uh, to win the Mustang magic competition and, you know, her video of her freestyle went viral and things like that. And, I was at such a high, but right after the competition, I went into a pretty low low just because I had based the past at least three years of my life. I had based it on winning this competition. And then I had won and I was like, oh, I still don't feel good enough. Yeah, now what? Yeah. And it's like I saw the pot of gold illusion, right? Like we spend our lives chasing this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow thinking if I have this, then I'll be happy. If I, if I win this, then I'll be enough or I'll be good enough or, you know, whatever it is. And so that was really another big turning point for me because I was like really questioning my motivation for doing what I was doing. Like, am I just, am I doing this in a way where I'm just trying to satisfy my ego and chase this pot of gold yeah. um, and this dangerous, you know, as you alluded to this dangerous, uh, Brene Brown calls it, uh, I am what I achieve type of mentality. And so that was another big turning point for me. Um, and I will say that, you know, the busy pattern is still something that I'm working on, but I think you know, I, I, we were talking earlier, I think I've made a lot of strides in it, but I think it's challenging for so many people. I mean, we live in such a fast paced culture that it's like, who has time to, you know, sit down and take time daily to reflect and dedicate to their awareness and spirituality and things like that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's very difficult when we live in, in, in a society that focuses so much on chasing trophies, right? And we're hyper competitive and instant (laughs) gratification runs rampant, right? And all of these things 
are just horrible for working with horses, right? And and that was my biggest draw in a lot of this is that um, I had some struggles professionally. I got back into horses uh, as a way to kind of clear my mind, right, and get away from from business. And in doing so, you know, I have my own moments of reflection. And at one point, I had aspirations of team roping. You know, I played college sports growing up, and I figured, heck, I'll get back into roping. It's something that I can compete at. It's something that I could win at. It's something that I could place value in myself, right, for for creating success. And as as I start to work with some of these horses and ride some of these rope horses, right, you, I just had this feeling that something wasn't right. Uh huh. That that the horse just wasn't. As an athlete, you know, you have to have you got to be in the zone when you compete, right? And it's this crazy, crazy intense focus and. In my experience, athletes that are passionate about the sports that they're playing, this focus, right? There's an air of calm to it. Right. And I didn't feel any of that in riding these horses. They were yeah. performing. They were performing well, phenomenally. They were performing better than I was performing. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't that sense of calm. There wasn't that sense of confidence. There wasn't that sense of love for the game. And that's when I I, I made the decision personally. I said, I'm just going to quit roping completely and I really need to focus on learning the horse and how do we create that confidence and that comfort and that drive and that desire. Yeah. And the greatest unintended benefit was I got to learn all that stuff about myself, right? Mm -hmm. So much of my life prior to this experience was just that. Can I be faster? Can I be smarter? Can I be more intelligent? Can I be more inquisitive? Um, than anything or anybody that I'm competing against. And in this moment of reflection, this huge light bulb went off and, and there's a couple mentors that I had in my life. And, and I don't know if you follow, there's a guy by the name of uh, Inky Johnson and Corius Johnson. He was a NCAA football player slated to go to the NFL, suffered a horrific injury. I've mentioned him before a couple times on the show, but he brings up this concept of investing yourself in something greater than you. Mm, yeah. Right. And that was what really, really hit it for me is that I could care less about any success that I have with horses in regards to trophies or accolades or competition. What is now important to me is how do I affect change? Mm-hmm. Right. How right. do I instill something that is going to change the face of horsemanship? And for me, God has obviously put this podcast in my face and, uh, for months and months and months, I, I shied away from doing it. And then I started to ask some people about the process and what they thought about it as far as educating people to trauma and understanding and self-reflection and how horsemanship plays such a huge role in all of those lessons that, you know, here we are today. And, and for me, that's that's my driving force is how do we help raise the bar of, of the common level of education of horsemanship? Wow. So much respect for you for for all of those steps you've taken that is awesome and I I can totally relate to that it's like when you start to have awareness over you know certain things or like our horses emotions and and things like that it's tough to walk away and say okay I'm gonna take like put this on pause until I can figure some of this you know stuff out versus Mm -hmm. just going uh that's you know, that takes a lot of courage too, I think. And, um, I totally relate to, to, you know, how you talked about, well, investing yourself in something greater than you. I think that's so powerful. And it going from being driven, you know, your fuel being coming from a place of ego and a place of fear and not enough to a place of heart and love and, you know, source driven, God driven, I think is, is amazing. And I, I was just thinking on this the other day and, listening to some stuff on this concept. Um, But it's really the concept of effortless action, because when you are connected to that higher power, and then you're letting that energy flow through you to serve your higher purpose, it's like there's no forcing and making it happen. It's more of an allowing. And I don't know about with you, like with your podcast and things, but I know with my work recently, it's just like, things just fall into place. Like, and yes. it's just amazing when you're open to just allowing versus being this, this state of, you know, trying to force it. Oh, I, I die laughing. I mean, when I look back at my experience with podcasts before starting this, zero, none. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what a podcast was when I had some of these first conversations about it. And a friend brought up the idea. And then 
obviously I, I have that early struggle of, is this thing going to be valuable or are people just going to laugh in my face? And then once right. the decision is made, it, there's a reason all these conversations are taking place. There's a reason all this stuff is being suggested to you. <laughs> uh, it's time to take action on it. Um, I literally sit back and laugh and look at the, the amount of guests that I had thus far, um, the caliber of guests that I had thus far. I mean, many of the conversations uh, should never take place when you look at it from a societal or social standard, right? I mean, I've had yeah. some of the greatest horsemen and women in the world on this show. And uh, it's, in my opinion, it's God and God only, and this is his work coming to light. And I just happen to be the individual that opens the door for everybody else. I love that. That's so awesome. It's been an incredible journey. But let's get back to your experience with Mustangs. What, what, what for you drove you to work with the, the Mustang? Yeah, so I got my first Mustang in 2013. Um, I had found out about the Extreme Mustang makeover like on YouTube or something. Um, I think it was when the Wild Horse Wild Ride documentary came out. And I don't even know... Well, it was a while before it actually came out. I just remember replaying the trailer. Like I would replay it like mm-hmm. 10 times in a row. Like I mm-hmm. so there was something about taking a completely wild animal and gaining its trust over a hundred days and then showcasing it to the world. You know, I I that's one of the big reasons I've fallen in love with the Mustangs and the makeovers. Um, although I don't know if I plan to do many in the future right now, but it's like there's this there's this format of the challenge and competition which I love, but it's also it's it has this um, you know higher purpose of doing something for the horse and raising awareness for these horses and taking these horses that you know are really hard for a lot of people to see any potential and you go and you know they're raindrops or you know, that's what they're referred to and they're um, in the wild or you go to the pens and their manes are in knots and, you know, you're just like kind of squint your eyes, cock your head and maybe, you know, maybe you'll yeah, see what something. Am, what am I looking at right here? <laughs> right. But so to take those animals and to do something amazing with them and show the world what they're capable of. I mean, my gosh, it's just so rewarding. And to see the parallels between all of the people that have been told, you know, you're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, athletic enough to do what you want to do. Um, for all of those people who have been told that they can't, the Mustang tells them they can. I mean, if you look at their story, so it's so powerful. So I totally got wrapped up in it. And I, um, think I, you know, I really owe the Mustangs and the zebras as being my greatest teachers because we get away with a lot with domestically bred horses, um, as far as training and things, because if you look at, you know, how, you know, how even horses are bred and who goes to the sale barn and things like that, um, the horses who can take a lot of pressure and do well under pressure um, are the ones that, you know, will breed or will keep, you know, will keep going or do well in the performance arena. And the ones that don't are, well, there's something wrong with that horse or they're dangerous or they're this or that. And then they, you know, go to the sale or the, you know, kill pens or whatever. Um, so it's, you know, the same, even, you know, with cattle, the, the, the cows that aren't handling pressure as well and easy to be around, they're probably going to go, uh, to slaughter sooner. So we've really kind of created these horses that are pretty compliant with, you know, with pressure for the most part. Um, and then there's these, some of these deviants, right. But then if you look at the Mustangs and especially the zebras, they are a product of mother nature. They are bred to survive. And that is that that's, I mean, that's the bottom line. So they're going to try to survive and if you're in the way, then, you know, too bad. Right. Yeah. So like you can't, especially with a zebra, like you can't get away with what you might typically do training a horse, uh, with a zebra. Cause they'll come at you. I mean, they'll, they've got, um, a bite that won't let go and a kick that can kill. I mean, you watch national geographic, and you, <laughs> you, you know, like it's not the same so they have been incredible teachers for me and especially when I got into rehabbing horses you know talk about instant gratification with horses I took a lot of pride in being able to 
get on a wild Mustang in two days and do the two day Colt starting challenges and having the horse ride around in two days and things like that. And then I started working with um, Mustangs that were not fresh out of the wild who had been through multiple homes um, or training situations and had failed conventional training. And I started rehabbing those horses and I literally will laugh remembering some of the first cases I got like this. I'm like, Oh yeah, two weeks. I'll have him riding around rehab, like ready to go to the adopter. And like one year later, right? Like it is that process and it really speaks to the concept of, you know, slow is fast and fast is slow. If you go fast in the beginning, there's going to be so many holes later on. So yeah, it's, it's been quite the journey, but the Mustangs have really been just such an amazing teacher. So let's talk about this just in case people were not listening or maybe did catch that. You work with zebras. I do. I How in God's green earth did we get started with zebras? Well, my grandfather on my dad's side uh, was the director of our local zoo in Indiana, and he was really passionate about um, educating um, the public and especially um, the youth on exotic animals and, um, you know, preservation and things like that. So he actually had buffalo and zebras in his backyard from the time my dad was growing up to the time uh, up until you know, my early teenage years, probably. Um, I actually have, I was looking through old pictures the other day and my dad, he's quite the daredevil. He had a picture with some of the buffalo who like happened to be laying down. And I don't think he realized like how dangerous this was. It looked like they were laying down and he like tried to get as close as he could. They got the picture. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but like <laughs> buffalo are super dangerous. The zebras that he had, I mean, I remember like trying to get near them when I was little, right? And you would get like within... I don't know, like 30 feet maybe. And mm-hmm. then you step wig or, you know, make a sudden movement or whatever. And they just go running Gone. like yeah. no way you can get close to them. So after my first Mustang makeover in 2015, you know, it was really, I think in the beginning, it was really about what's the next challenge. What's the next big thing, you know? And for me, that was the zebra. Everyone says you can't train a zebra. So of course me naturally, I'm like, Oh, so well, watch let's, this. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> let's go try this. So I had to really do a check, you know, of what my intentions were a few years down the line. Um, and especially when I got my second zebra, And, you know, now I see them as really a great outlet to teach people about equine behavior Um, because people get so fascinated for one, like when you bring a zebra, like... Oh, I think it's absolutely incredible watching all your videos and you got these little itty bitty zebras running up next to you, rubbing on you and wanting the attention. It's just, it's it's absolutely amazing. Thank you. Yeah, they they are really incredible animals. So my my goal is definitely not to advocate like zebra ownership or pets <laughs> like that. Like I try to make it very clear that they're very wild. But um, yes, yes, yeah. I mean, it's just I wouldn't be the trainer that I am today if it weren't for the zebras. Because especially Zeus, my younger zebra. Like I remember when I and I guess this is kind of an important thing to talk about too. Is I remember when I started working with him, um, I would just go to like ask him to back up like I had with countless horses before and my other zebra, you know, and so I'd like kind of lean forward, maybe wave, um, you know, like a stick or, you know, a whip or the end of my rope, uh, maybe give him like a verbal warning, like a kiss and then start tapping until he backed up or maybe even just took a shift of weight back in the mm-hmm. beginning. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... I did went through that process and oh my gosh, that first session, like if he had been a full grown zebra, I would have been killed. Like he was climbing up on me, striking, biting, like really in fight mode. And I was like, I mean, I just had to take a step back and be like, okay, what Hold am I going Like if I don't figure out a way to train him, then I'm going to have to surrender him to like a zoo or sanctuary or something like, so you know, talking about positive reinforcement training, um, that's actually when my journey with that began because I had this zebra. I couldn't oh, really? train. And I was like, well, there's no way I could like screw him up any more than he's already screwed up. Right. Like, <laughs> so I might as well give the, I, this is my only shot. And it makes complete, like no sense to traditional, like our traditional training. Yes. Trajectory. yes. It, because yes. if there's a horse doing that, 
okay, their lack of respect, show him his boss, be the alpha, da, 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 da. And so the fact that clicker training and food got me the results it did with Zeus, which now I can just lean towards him and he can back up 15 steps, um, is just really incredible. And it, then that flipped my whole world upside down, right? Because now I'm like, oh my God, everything I ever knew about horses seems like it's not true. And, you know, trying to figure this out, like, why is this working? And it really led me to understand that a lot of behaviors that we attribute to a lack of respect or dominance or, you know, whatever, is really just fear, right? So the mm-hmm. horses react to mm-hmm. fight, fight or freeze. And Zeus was in a state of fight. And so that's really what started my whole positive reinforcement journey. And then I ended up going and studying with other um, trainers outside the horse industry. And it's crazy. You know, you can teach a polar bear to give its paw, you know, to draw blood, but we think we can't use it for our horses. And it's just, there's, yeah, it's just so, it's so interesting to see that. But that's how I initially opened up to positive reinforcement because before Zeus, I was totally against any kind of food. So in short, the zebras have really caused me to grow in my training uh, to go outside the box. So I think it's incredible. And I really want to kind of develop some of this uh, positive reinforcement uh, concept because I was just like you, right? Uh, we do not hand feed horses. We do not give them treats. They don't get treats in the wild, right? There's not the candy store that they can stop in on the ranch, you know? Um, uh, I've done some work with dogs, right? And the whole clicker training and positive reinforcement is a huge deal, right? When working with dogs. And, um, we, we talked a little bit before the show and, and I've given it thought to my horse, right? Cause he just, I'm having a very tough time getting total commitment from him on some things, right? He's willing to work and he's willing to try and he's willing to learn and explore, but I just don't feel that, that 100% investment. And I've often wondered, I wonder if food motivation would kind of help tip the scale for a horse of this personality. So what I'd like to talk about is like maybe what horses do you think positive reinforcement is advantageous for? Is there a certain type of personality or are there those horses that are just so dangerous that maybe you should steer clear and kind of really focus on professional help when, when dealing with positive reinforcement training? Okay. So I just like wrote down so many points as you're talking. Cause I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is so, you know, this just feels me like to talk about is so energizing for me but um it's just so exciting because there's so much potential untapped potential here for working with our horses so there's a few things that I think and then we'll and then if it's okay I'll touch on what type of horse and what if they're dangerous and things absolutely um so first of all I want to make it very clear that poor training is poor training and so if you are dealing with poor negative reinforcement training which is pressure and release or poor positive reinforcement training, which is like the clicker training, you're going to have side effects with either. So, um, you know, with poor pressure and release, you have horses who shut down or who bolt or who fight the pressure or who turn aggressive and things like that. Um, And if you have poor positive reinforcement training, then I think we all know of the picture of this horse running someone over, trying to get to the food and mugging them. So that's what I want to point out first, because I think we have all these connotations about what clicker training is. And then also being, you know, piggy banking off of that, being very clear on what is the motivation. So what's the motivation is really, you know, if you look at learning theory and the research behind this from a scientific perspective, um, horses are motivated by, um, by rewards and punishers, right? So something that's appetitive that they want to acquire or something that's aversive that they want to avoid. And then that takes you into like the learning quadrant where you have negative reinforcement, positive reinforcement, um, negative punishment, positive punishment. Um, And so we oftentimes will say like when we're round pinning a horse, I mean, I hear this all the time, when the horse starts facing up, we say that the motivation is that the horse is coming in to look for a partnership. You could say that with clicker training or negative reinforcement training when the horse starts to look at you and focus Mm -hmm. and start. Mm -hmm. But the motivation for the horse is quite simple. It's actually not as lofty as we might like it to be. It's really that you are, you know, the escape of pressure, whether that be physical pressure, you know, the lunge whip or the end of a lariat or just the mental pressure 
of um, the work um, or even, you know, looking at them could be aversive if it's a wild horse. So I think that it's really important to be aware of these driving motivators because it's just like if you were to take your hat off and let it go, uh, you know, hold your hand out and let your hat go, it's going to drop to the ground whether you believe in gravity or not. It's the same with these motivations. They're still going to be at work whether you believe in them or not or you think your horse is doing this or, you know, a partnership or whatever we attribute it to. Not to say that, you know, that's not possible. Uh, obviously, my whole life is dedicated to connecting and building a partnership with horses. But it's just under it's important to not confuse um, that terminology with what the motivation is. Um, and so I think that the quicker training for me, I could get everything done without the food, right? So up until 2017 with Amira, that was just around the time I started diving into positive reinforcement with Zeus. Mm -hmm. But Amira and all of my other Mustangs and Xena, my first zebra, had all been trained with pressure and release techniques. So it works, right? Like Absolutely. It's, it, um, but when I started working with Zeus, who was very aggressive, or started rehabbing these Mustangs who had been through previous training, I kind of reached the limits of negative reinforcement. And like, maybe it could have worked, but I really also started looking at the process and how smooth could I make the process. And with positive reinforcement, it was just so easy to create this smooth process, whether I was working with a Mustang that I was rehabilitating or one fresh out of the wild. And so kind of those two things really led me to look at positive reinforcement. And I started using it on the horses I had previously trained with negative reinforcement. Even though they were doing all the behaviors I wanted them to do, I realized that they didn't have that sparkle in their eye, that joy. Yes, yes. That comes from the clicker training because there's something in it for them. They're working to avoid something they want to acquire versus something they want to avoid, which is pressure. Right. Yeah. Well, so, so much of training or foundational training, I guess, at this point is, or the common level of horsemanship is, right? The horse just wants to be left alone and that's enough of a reward. But okay, what about the horses where it's not enough of a reward? Right. Right. Well, and yeah, that's a really, so this is really where I turned everything got turned on its head was with Amira. One of the ways I had trained her to do like, if you watch her video of the competition, I'm like in the Cinderella dress. If you type in Mustang Cinderella, mm -hmm. it'll come. But I do like a bridal, bareback and bridalist like sliding stop with her at 100 days out of the wild. And how I had trained her to do that was in training, like whenever she gave me a good stop and loosen that front end, was started using her hind end, I would get off, loosen her cinch and either be done for the day or like take a five minute break, like walk around, tie her up and then get back on her. Um, and actually the barn that I worked at working with barrel horses back in the day, um, they, they like to smoke a lot, right? So they would, they would be riding their horses. And as soon as the horse would have a breakthrough, they'd take a break, have a cigarette. And I called it the cowboy smoke break because they were actually, <laughs> their horses. they were giving the yeah. horses this reward you could, which is just leaving the horse alone yeah. and giving the ultimate release of pressure. So when I went to work with marine mammal trainers, and I actually went to work with some dolphins and things like that, because they are actually the founders of, you know, the basic mm -hmm. clicker methodology, um, it you could actually give a dolphin accidental punishment by ending the session too abruptly, meaning that it was completely different than horses, you actually had to end the session with great care in the sense that the animal might take it as negative punishment, because you're removing like their favorite toy for like their favorite thing, you know, their favorite activity, which was the training because they found it so reinforcing. There was something in it for them. So after that, I was like, oh my gosh, like huge light bulb moment. Yeah, like, yeah. it's incredible. don't want to like, if, if it's reinforcing for the behavior to end, you know, when I was, when I was working with the marine mammals, if it's reinforcing for your animal to want the behavior to end, you failed as a trainer. And I was like, well, taking that, that back to horses, have I failed my horse? It like, you know, it's just, you could totally go down. Oh, it absolutely raises the question. Right. Absolutely. So I think that absolutely we can create a very ethical training with pressure and release, right? And we can create a calm horse. But when it comes to getting that sparkle in the eye, that joy and that excitement about training, that's where positive reinforcement comes into play. 
Um, so it just depends. Like, what are your personal goals? Like, what is, what are your values? You know, what's important to you? For me, going back to my beginning start with horses, I told you that my main mission was to get my horses to want to be with me as much as I wanted to be with them. And for me, clicker training has been a big door that has opened up for me. Um, it's like before my horses were complacent about training, right? Like I'd go to get them. It's not like they'd run away, but they didn't really carry their way. And now it's like, I literally, we have to have gate manners because everyone wants to come in and trip. <laughs> and it's so fun to, I mean, it's reinforced, talk about positive reinforcement. Yeah. It's reinforced for you as the trainer to see the horses being so engaged and wanting to interact. To like be that. involved. Yeah. That is, yeah. it's, it's so cool to watch. Yeah. So now if you want, I can touch on like, what if you have a horse that's dangerous? If you want, we can look at that. No, I, I think it's, I think it's great, especially with your experience with Zeus, right? Cause that's obviously a dangerous animal. Exactly. Completely dangerous. You look at a zebra, he was a stud at the time he had been bucket fed. That's like the worst combination you could think of. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. And it worked with him. So there's two types of aggression. There is aggression and it basically comes out of a lack of control. So there's a, an aggression that comes um, from negative reinforcement training. That is the horse doesn't have control over what happens to him, like pressure, for example. Um, and so feeling that lack of control, that's where the aggression comes from. So um, it's basically like avoidance based aggression. Then there's also like an appetitive based aggression where the horse gets aggressive because they're actually wanting something that they can't get like food, for example. Um, now what we have learned in research is that it's actually a lot easier to work with appetitive based aggression than it is avoidance based aggression. Um, so it's a lot easier to work with. Um, so that being said, um, I think that positive reinforcement has huge potential for these horses that have been deemed so dangerous that they're untrainable um, because, first of all, you're going to relieve that fight instinct that comes into play when horses feel pressure that they don't understand or can't get away from, and it triggers that instinct, right, and that avoidance aggression. You can work at a level where you're, where you're avoiding that and then slowly introduce the pressure back in. I call that honoring the horse's window of tolerance um, and actually the process of titration, which is very similar with, um, you know, therapy and counseling and things like that. Uh, we could talk about that more as well. But, no, I was just um, thinking it's it's just a titration of, of pressure, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if the horse's tolerance for pressure in the beginning is like a zero or a one, then you can actually trigger behaviors with positive reinforcement or like target training and then gradually introduce the pressure. So I'm working on formulating a gentling program right now for like a step-by-step -step program of gentling wild horses. If you think of a wild horse, their window of tolerance for pressure when they come in is definitely like a zero or one. I mean, you just look at them and that's pressure, Yeah, that's right? enough to set them off, yeah. Right. So when you go to introduce a halter, for example, if you've already taught the horse to back up with a target, which requires zero pressure, the horse is following a target with their nose, you bring it towards their chest, you reward a weight shift back and then steps back, etc. Um, they're backing up to the cue of the target. Then what you do is you can use the target to translate what the halter means and also honor the horse's window of tolerance. So I might come in with pressure on the halter, just like a one or a two. The horse might go to think about getting reactive. I'll just let go of the halter, show them the answer at the target, and then they get the reward. And then you can gradually get up to maybe a three or four pressure in the halter, uh, show them the answer at the target if you need to, and then maybe a five or six with the halter. And you can start getting them to the point where you might have to jerk on that halter and lead rope to prepare them for when they're tied up and they're going to face adult of pressure if they go to spook, right? So that they mm -hmm. don't step back. You can prepare them for that instance, but the, the difference is you're avoiding the high state of stress and the potential trauma by honoring the window of tolerance and, um, and um, you know, gradually exposing them to that versus just coming right in with it, um, if that makes sense. So, and with an aggressive horse, that's a huge thing. And another thing also is protected contact training. Now, this is totally kind of like weird we don't think about it in the horse training industry but if you're training a bear you're gonna not be in the, the pen with them right you're gonna have some hopefully yeah if that's the case then you can go ahead and go first i'll just watch and right. see how you do <laughs> exactly. 
So with the horses that have showed aggression, I wouldn't even recommend going in the pen with them. You're doing all of the work through protected contact until the horse feels more safe and you feel more safe. And there's a lot of different setups you can get creative with. Um, but as I'm putting this gentling program together for people too, um, it's like as much as we can do in protected contact to keep people safe, especially, you know, I'm working with young 4-H kids and things like that or mm-hmm. old and you know, um, it's just so, it's so useful. Um, and it's a tool that we, you know, could have probably used on horses that have otherwise been super, um, super dangerous, but going back to, to just honoring the horse's thresholds, um, and that process of titration for an aggressive horse, you know, if you have an aggressive horse, it could be their threshold, their tolerance of you even coming in their space is before you even open the gate to the round pen. So doing some approach and retreat, even there, giving them some releases and gradually working up to even being in the pen with them. Um, if you're using just traditional, you know, negative reinforcement pressure and release is super important. So there's, yeah, there's so many aspects to it. What is so exciting about all this horsemanship stuff is it, it never ends. Yeah. yeah right. It's sure. so, there's just a constant evolution that's taking place and, you know, why not take a chance on some of these methods? It's it's worked with different disciplines and different types of animals. So uh, I think it's absolutely incredible. I'm absolutely fascinated and enamored by all of it. Uh, it's really exciting to see this in the incipient stages and see what it what it grows and fosters and becomes. I'm I'm excited as well. I'm right there with you. It's it's an exciting time for sure. So so much of our episode, we've kind of talked about this concept of awareness and education. So. I guess for people who may not be as familiar with this style of horsemanship, right? And understanding pressures and and emotion and even horses' emotional responses, right? And what to look for. What are some suggestions you might have on on ways where people can find more educational material on these topics? So I like to think of it in terms of reading a horse's thresholds. So if you kind of think about like a horse's comfort zone is what they're totally cool with. I got this. I'm confident. Feel good about it. A horse's learning zone is where they're maybe being pushed a little bit to the point where they're really having to actively think through this, right? And then there's this threshold. And if you pass that, you go into the reaction zone, which is where you see fight, flight, or freeze. So as you approach threshold, if you're visualizing this, there are going to be little signs your horse is going to give you of discomfort that a lot of times we totally miss because it's inattentional blindness, right? If you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to see it. And my favorite example of this is literally when Christopher Columbus arrived in the quote unquote new world and the natives were looking out into the ocean. They literally, there's reports that they didn't see the ships coming because they had never dreamed up a ship. They had never seen a ship, right? Like, so they literally, these ships were coming to shore and they didn't see them until they were like, you know, right there because they didn't know what to look for. So it's the same thing with our horses. It's like, we are so blind to all of these signs unless we start to see them. And that's what I was saying earlier in the episode. You know, it's like, once you learn to see, you kind of wish that you didn't see anymore because it's going to be tough. Like when you start seeing motions and it's like, how do I go back to roping or barrel racing or doing these things that I used to do and still seeing these emotions and how to work through them. Like it's so anyways, it's, but little signs, I mean, little signs like horses shifting their weight back when you go to approach them, or this is a big one, even horses not being okay with being touched, having to, you know, going, going to halter them and them taking a a little step back or horses where you have to kind of corner the Mustangs that I I know I just got one new Mustang in that I'm rehabbing that has this bolting issue and, and chronic bucking issue. He's not relaxed from the time you halter him because you have to literally back him up to halter him or, or touch him, right? So it's like there's all these little signs that the horse before you even put a saddle on him is going over threshold. Yeah. But as we don't, we're not trained what to see, that, you know, we don't recognize it and then it blows up and we think the horse has unpredictable reactive behavior. And this is where I try to stress the point to people that it's no fault to the individual, right? If you don't have this education, exactly. not having the education, I guess, is less of an offense than having availability to it and not caring, you know, but if, nope. if, if you don't, Better. yeah, if you don't know, how do you hold yourself accountable to that level? And that's kind of the, a, a motivation for me is like, how do we, you know, how do we as horsemen and women, right? 
work together in all of our experiences to, to, to raise that bar, right? And make this content available and make it digestible. Because oftentimes some of these concepts are so foreign to people that they just, they either lose interest or they can't wrap their mind around it, you know? So it's uh, quite the challenge. Yeah, it's scary because it's scary to give up things you thought you knew, like with Zeus, like thinking that his behavior you're showing was a lack of respect. Like that's scary to let go of that belief because then you're questioning all these other beliefs, right? Like what, yeah. what if, and um, I think you really, um, really spoke to this so well on being able to have compassion for people wherever they're at on their journey. And um, that is, so so important and compassion for ourselves once we do learn these techniques and we learn to how we can better honor our horses you know it's easy to look back and say i wish i would have known this with this horse you know earlier and to really start shaming ourselves which is just a total spiral and it does not serve it does not serve us the community our horses or anything so it's a really a really powerful lesson in compassion and now, I really strongly believe our horses are here to be our teachers. And um, it's so important to hold compassion for ourselves as we do learn more, you know, for where we were at previously. I know myself, I, you know, looking back to my early years, I think that I um, hurt a lot of horses before I ever helped them, you know, from yeah. a training perspective. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, going back to positive reinforcement, if someone truly understands what positive reinforcement is, they're going to use positive reinforcement on people, meaning that you are not going to try to shame someone because of the methods they're using, no matter, you know, what your personal belief is on that, you're not going to place a judgment on them, or shame them. Um, oh, you should really do this, you know, it's, it's, just keeping that door open. And when people ask and are like, Oh, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. Can you tell me more about that? Um, or, you know, where should I go to learn more about this? Really giving positive reinforcement towards that curiosity, right? Yeah, and no, you're absolutely right. So, yeah. So obviously you're branded as Mustang Maddie because of all of your involvement. Uh, I, I really want to touch on, on your website. I want to touch on your social media. I want to touch on your YouTube. I mean, a lot of this content that we've discussed is free and available in greater detail than obviously what we can cover in about an hour episode. So let's talk about all your social media avenues and, and how people can consume more of what you have to offer. Awesome. So they can follow me at Mustang Maddie on Facebook, Instagram, that good stuff. Um, the Compassionate Cowgirl is a new show I've just released on YouTube. Um, so that would be a great place if they want to start um, just kind of uh, getting into some of these concepts in greater detail. Um, I also have a free video series um, that is a five-day trust-building fast track where I talk about, you know, thresholds and two-way communication and things like that. Everything kind of that I've put together that can help avoid trauma in our horses and build trust. Um, and they can get that at mustangmaddie.com slash trust. Um, and then... Yeah, that would probably be good places um, to start for them as um, as far as diving into their journey with it. And I know you do offer an online academy, right? And and kind of your your five golden rules to horse and human connection. Let's let's kind of develop that a little bit and and yeah, tell people what that's all about. I basically am like I have two learning opportunities available to people. I have the online learning through the Mustang Maddie Academy. Um, which is our membership, which has hundreds of training videos. It has training pathways. So if you want to get into positive reinforcement, it takes you on a step-by-step -step guided journey to do that. Um, I'm working on a gentling pathway and cult starting pathway right now. I have a groundwork for success pathway in there. Um, so that's a great resource, a great community of amazing people too. Um, uh, and then the five golden rules are um, also a part of the academy. And the five golden rules are basically the formula I've developed from my work with the Mustangs, the zebras, my research um, from other trainers and um, trauma research and things like that. Um, and it's really the formula behind my method. Um, and so my goal with that is to really empower people in their own right so that they learn the tools that they can think through any training situation using the five golden rules versus trying to memorize every training scenario, um, which is, you know, fairly impossible or would take most of a lifetime in order to do. 
Um, so I kind of think about it like if you're going to learn to go cook, you can either memorize a recipe book or always reference the recipe book. Or you can just learn the ingredients and how they work together to create your own recipes. And the five golden rules are really the ingredients of horsemanship. Um, and then you can combine them in all different kinds of ways to come up with really cool individualized recipes for any horse, any situation. Um, so that's my goal with the five golden rules. It's basically my life's work up until this point. <laughs> my baby. No big um, deal, though. No big deal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Maddie, I'll tell you, I thank you very much for all the time that you spent with us today. Uh, it's an incredible episode. We covered a lot of ground. There's so much more content available through your social media and your websites. As we as we come to a close in every single episode, I like to give every guest the opportunity to kind of share their final thoughts or words that they live by. What would be a message that you would like to convey to people who maybe are starting down this journey or, or people you would like to encourage? Oh, that's such a good question told me about this earlier i got so excited <laughs> about stuff. i'm gonna probably listen to this and be like oh my gosh i was so loud and talking so fast i get so excited um so my biggest advice i guess number one i guess this is something i've really been thinking about lately number one is courage like having the courage to show up because Sometimes we get paralyzed, um, and especially when you dive into all of this work and you're questioning what you've been doing, trying to learn the new stuff and, and all of that, it's like you just get paralyzed. But the biggest thing is just having the courage to put yourself out there um, and, and show up and put in the time with your horse. And um I think that that is so important, having that courage and the courage to do something different and the courage to go out there and just lead by example. Show with your horse. Don't go tell people what they need to be doing. Just go show the world what you're doing with your horse and then, you know, leading by example. But that takes a lot of courage, especially to go against the mold, against the grain. Um so that's a big one. Um, compassion would be another thing. Compassion for your horse. Compassion for yourself is the biggest. Compassion for other people. I, I really believe compassion starts with yourself and then it ripples out to all of your other interactions. But how we talked about earlier, you know, honoring honoring everyone where they're at in their journey is so big. Um, and then finally, really being open see what the horse has to teach the human. You know, I well, back when I started this, I thought there's something mystical about horses, right? Like something like magical almost like, and we try to capture this in countless theatric films and black beauty and the black stallion, like this, this bond between horse and human. And, and as I reflect on kind of what is that magic, the magic does not lie in what we have to teach our horses but what our horses have to teach us. And when you're really open to that and receptive, it is amazing where the horse will take you. So, so, so powerful. So powerful. Yeah, that's my advice. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, Maddie, I am so excited to see where all this research and, and training, what it develops into. I think you're definitely at the forefront of something very revolutionary in the world of horsemanship. Um, we're looking forward to all that 2019 has to offer you. And with the amount of content that we covered today, I could see where, where we could go down a few more rabbit holes and probably make a 10-hour episode out of this. So we'd love to have you back at any time. You uh, you have an open invitation here at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. And again, we thank you for your time and, and wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great. All right, Maddie. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.